Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Today we, we separate from the really committed to those who are just playing and the snow is held them back. Like we're on the first train to Jesus when he comes back. You know what I'm saying, folks here today? <laughs> Don't tell that to the people that weren't here. Okay. I'm just, uh, but uh, welcome to the hills where we believe God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse uh, church. Uh, amen. I like it. Amen. Uh, if you have your, your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. It's about page 764. I was, forgot to look it up, so I was just trying to get it. I believe on the Bible under your, your chair, it'll also be on the screen. There's a, uh, a company that's much like Gallup, uh, how they take polls and things, but for uh, Christian groups called the Barna Group. And the Barna Group has come out with some uh, disturbing numbers that uh, millennials, which is, you know, Depends on which study you look at. But uh, people from the age 18 to 34, only about 4% of them are part of a church. Um, and, and we are increasingly a, a secular nation with, with no even Christian memory, like Christian uh, foundation. And um, just one example of that, my boys, they play soccer. And, and for the last few summers, uh, we put them in a camp called uh, a British soccer camp. And this organization brings in uh, young adults from England, Scotland to come over and teach soccer because everybody knows if you have uh, an English accent, you're better at soccer, especially soccer instruction. I don't know. But anyway, so the, they bring over these young adults and the young adults, they go to different cities to host the camps. And each place they go, there are host families where the young adults come and stay with them. And so we've been the host family a couple times because we enjoy doing that. And also, uh, you get a discount on the camp. Uh, that's hallelujah. Uh, and so we had a young lady from England, and we were around the, the dinner table one night. And I don't know how we got chatting about it, but we were talking about Easter. And, and she knew about the Easter bunny, and she knew about Easter candy, but she had zero idea that Jesus was in any way connected to Easter. Now, you think, well, I feel like most people in the United States, even if they're not religious, atheists, don't like us, have an idea that Easter is connected to, to Jesus. Um, and, but uh, Europe is just a, a little bit further ahead of us when it comes to being a post-Christian nation. Like, there's no memory anymore of, of, uh, of Jesus or or who he was. And, and what makes matters worse is that 80 to 85% of American churches are declining. And it's, it's estimated, depending on what study you look at, that this year alone, six to 10,000 churches in the United States will close. Now, I'm not talking about single digit six to 10,000. 6,000 to 10,000 churches are going to close this year in the United States. And, and so as Christians, sometimes we feel like we're, we're losing our influence. Like the culture is changing, we're not, we're not keeping up. And, uh, and for some, it's created a, an us versus them mentality. Like we got to, um, well, we need to boycott. And we'll find some stuff to boycott, right? Uh, I don't know what it is this week. Uh, but if, if that's the, your, um, your relationship to people who are not part of the, the church, then you're going to have to boycott a lot. Like you're probably going to have to put up your phone, uh, probably not shop at the local the market anymore. Because uh, there's always going to be something that you can find to, to oppose, to be us, us versus them. And, um, but what, what's happened? Why? I mean, and it's tempting, tempting to blame the culture. 
like to look outside the walls of the church and say, oh, we're just going to hell in a handbasket. Um, but if, if the church never grew in um, hostile environments, we wouldn't have the church today. Like we look at the book of Acts and it was a hostile environment. Uh, we saw last week that led to the, the death of, of Stephen. And so if it were just hostile environments that um, kept uh, the church down and kept the message down, then, then maybe we would have a right to complain or to get upset. But the greatest periods of church growth, particularly in the first century, took place in hostile cultures. And it, it was a movement we see in the book of Acts that couldn't be stopped. It could not be stopped. And it's a far cry from the American church today fortunately. And, and so just a, a quick history lesson, just going back about 40 years, uh, from 1970 to 1990, uh, population growth was away from city centers. Like the suburbs were ideal places to go, cities were seen as dangerous, and if we're honest, it was white flight in a lot of circumstances. Um, but for the last 20 years, and especially uh, those who have been in Denver a while, uh, the last five years, like people are moving to cities. It's not just Denver. Every major city around the United States, like people are coming back to the cities or the place to be again. Of course, it leads to other issues uh, when it comes to gentrification and things. But cities are the place to be. The, the problem is that the church, uh, on just a larger scale, has stayed in the suburbs. Like it hasn't come back to the city. And so whatever denomination you look at, if you look at population density, as the density of a population, as the density of a city goes up, the presence of the church goes down. So the more dense uh, of an urban area, the, the fewer churches that are there, the fewer Christians that are there. Um, and I have a friend, uh, Steve Pike, he comes to the church when he's not traveling, Steve and Sherry. But he um, leads an organization called the Urban Islands Project, and he calls it the Urban O. Like when you look at our, our cities, like there is a hole where the church is no longer present. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that culture and influence comes from the city and goes out to other places and goes out to the suburbs and goes out to the rural areas. And, um, and our, so that is our challenge, that our cities, the place where cultures and ideas are formed, are increasingly devoid of the voice and presence of the church. And so what are we going to do? And by we, I mostly mean you. What are you, you going to do? How can we become a movement? How can we see the gospel become unstoppable in our generation? How can we see that? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now at verse 1, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. You're like, who, uh, they were giving approval to his death. Like, who's death? And this is one of those times where I think the chapters and the verses may not have been put in quite right uh, in Scripture, because you have to go back to the last chapter, because uh, this is the conclusion of Stephen's, uh, the first Christian martyr, had given his life uh, for, the, for the faith. And then we're introduced to Philip for the second time. And Philip, uh, like Stephen, had started 
in ministry and in what a lot of people would consider a less spiritual role. Like he was just in charge of, of taking care of the widows. But here he is being used, used by God. And so today I want to look at three things that this passage teaches us. Uh, one, how to be a movement. Two, that movement start in the city. And three, how to effectively minister in the city. And so in the first four verses, we see a threefold cause and effect is that Stephen's death caused a great persecution. Somehow when, when others saw this first Christian uh, persecuted and put to death, like others like, hey, we should get involved and do more of that. And so they started persecuting the church. And as a result, they were scattered. So that was the second thing that happened. And as a result of those being scattered, they preached the word wherever they went. So we see that the death led to persecution and the persecution led to scattering and the scattering led to increased ministry. And those who wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, to stamp it out, actually served to further the cause of Christianity. Um, now, do you remember in Acts chapter 1, it's, uh, we've been in the, in the book of Acts for a couple months now, in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus told his followers to go take the good news? The ends of the earth. You will receive uh, my spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. Where are uh, the disciples up to this point in the book of Acts? Jerusalem. Several years have passed, and even though that Jesus had given them a very clear command to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, and even though on the day of Pentecost there was a miracle of languages being spoke for all the nations representing that everybody is invited to come to Jesus, even though it took the persecution of the church to finally get them to do what Jesus had told them to do in the first place. It says all... Um, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Because um, in, in some ways, the worst thing for the spread of the gospel is a comfortable life. It's a comfortable life. Um, so what's it, what's it going to take for you? Like me, I'm not a preacher. Uh, but who is scattered and who is doing the preaching in these verses? And, and one of the, the most significant little phrases in the book of Acts is in chapter or in verse four, it said, "Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Where were the apostles? They stayed in Jerusalem. So the apostles, the, the leaders of the church, the clergy stayed, and everybody else uh, was scattered. Uh, and what you know today we have we say clergy and lay people, and we don't really use those those terms here. We believe we're all ministers. But it says they preach the word, and, and it's not really the word for like what I'm doing here, standing, proclaiming, but it's the word for evangelize. So everybody was evangelizing wherever they went. And, and when we look at history, and, and Christianity was just one of dozens of philosophies, dozens of religions in Rome at that time. So when you wonder like, how, how is it that after a couple hundred years, Christianity grew like it did? It's because every Christian evangelized wherever they went. Like it, this was a, everybody was involved in, in this. Because um, apparently when the, the Christians were all together under the, the leadership of the apostles, they'd kind of been fairly passive in ministry. Like maybe we'll just, oh, the Peter, he's a great preacher. We'll go and bring our friends to hear Peter. And that was about the extent of their, their ministry. But now they're being scattered um, and, and they're being more effective than the apostles who are still in, in Jerusalem. Um, and you, you might, well, here's the thing. If, if you tell someone about Jesus, they may be more apt to listen to you than they would to me. 
Because when they find out I'm a pastor, oh, you're a preacher, you got to do this, right? This is kind of expected. But when everybody else is sharing their faith, I mean, the the church is not supposed to be made up of, of providers and consumers, let me say that one more time. Uh, the, the church is not supposed to be made up of providers and consumers where there's just a handful of people doing the ministry and everybody else just kind of consuming and that was good and then we'll go home. And it was, it's meant uh, for us all to be providers of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. It's not the job of the clergy to do evangelism and doing the preaching of the good news. Um, and so we see in, in Acts that it wasn't a church uh, missions plan that led to the expansion of the gospel. Now, we should have plans. We should have a, an idea, but that's not how it, how it worked. Everybody is doing something. Everybody's taking Jesus with them wherever, wherever they go. Uh, there's uh, the story of Christianity. Uh, in the opening verses, it talks about this idea. And the idea, when we look at the New Testament, we think like, man, Paul, he did it all. He took the gospel everywhere. It was, it was just him. We need more Paul's. Um, and the author here says, but to say that Paul took the gospel to those areas is not to imply that he was the first to do so. The epistle to the Romans shows that there was a church in the imperial capital in Rome uh, before Paul's arrival. Furthermore, the spread of Christianity in Italy was such that when Paul arrived at the small seaport, uh, there were Christians there. Therefore, Paul's significance for the early spread of Christianity ought not to be exaggerated. Although the New Testament speaks a great deal of Paul and his journeys, there were many others preaching in various regions. The missionary task itself was undertaken not only by Paul and others whose names are known, Barnabas, Mark, but also by countless and nameless Christians who went from place to place, taking with them their faith and their witness. Some of these, like Paul, traveled as missionaries impelled by their faith, but mostly these nameless Christians were merchants, slaves, and others who traveled for various reasons, but whose travel provided the opportunity for the expansion of the Christian message. It was everybody else getting involved. It was the entire church taking Jesus with them wherever they went. And so this is our, our challenge. And as a church and as a leadership of the church, like we want to equip and we want to tr- train so that we're all living on mission. Like we are all uh, taking this good news with us uh, wherever we go and so I just want to give you a few practical trips, uh, tips on this. Because sometimes when we think of evangelism, we think of like, oh man, I got to go knock on somebody's door. I got to take a gospel track. Uh, I'm not talking about that. If you want to do that, okay, that's fine. Uh, but, but mainly, I mean, just being intentional about your witness. Being intentional about letting others know about Jesus. And Elora and I, we are continually asking ourselves, like, who are we hanging out with? this week, uh, who doesn't know Jesus? Like, have, it's been a couple weeks. Like, how can we, we do that? And, and so um, that's, that's a lot of how we, we try to do this. And so it's looked different for us over the years, but there was a time, like, Elora was part of a ladies' supper club. Seems pretty, pretty simple. Uh, have supper, ladies. That, that was it. Uh, we played uh, co-ed softball in the summer. And uh, we weren't, we're not exactly all-star softball players, uh, but we were all right. We were all right. <laughs> um, and, and we played in Summit County, and it was, it was mostly like if, if we could stay more sober than the other team, we had a chance to win. You know, that was, 
That was it. Uh, I coached my son's sports teams, and it's something I'd love to do anyway, like hanging out with my boys. I'm coaching sports, and so uh, up over here at the Hiawatha Rec Center, I was thinking before service today that I've coached at least 10 soccer and basketball teams up at Hiawatha. We just finished, and I'll be coaching uh, basketball up at, at Stedman um, for the fourth and fifth graders. But I, I love sports, love kids, I love Jesus, so I just put it together. It's like, what are those things in your life that you like to do that you're rubbing shoulders with people who, who don't know Jesus, uh, being intentional? Uh, for the last uh, 11 years, on Tuesday nights in the winter, you could find me at downstairs at Eric's in Breckenridge because they sponsored, I also played basketball, so they sponsored our team, uh, free beer, free pizza every Tuesday night, uh, and I think the team's been going for like 20, 25 years. I've just been on there the last 11 years, and so just hanging out with guys, and sometimes it's just talking about sports, but sometimes it was talking about like marriage, faith, like I hate my job, having those conversations um, with one another. Uh, I also, I started a guy's book club. That wasn't so successful. <laughs> it was, you know, it was all right. Uh, we had certain rules, no vampires, you know, that was an important one a few years ago. Uh, 300 page limit, no series of books, uh, but it, everybody took turns. And so when it was, it was my turn to choose, I would choose a book that at least led us into some spiritual conversations at the, uh, at the coffee shops where we met. But it's, it's not about being busy. Like, what do you already enjoy doing? What can you invite people into your life to do with you where we can be intentional on mission? And, and I can't tell you how my life has been enriched by being around people who don't believe like I believe. Like asking me questions that I have a hard time answering. Like, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, it's helped me grow as well. Uh, I've got just a short video I believe I want to show real quick. They're parasites. They've got no contribution to this society. They're preying on our community and our kids. And it's going to end badly. We've got exactly $100,000 in cash in the back of this car. I bet there's guys right there in that prison for doing just what we're about to do. I want the Breckenridge Cannabis Club to be a household name. This is us pioneering a new industry. He's going after every resort town in Colorado. His plan is brilliant. This is a big boy operation now. We are not the Amsterdam of the Rockies. We're Breckenridge. Absolutely unbelievable to us that this has happened so quickly. That's when the town erupted. All hell can break loose. I think we have an image to protect. The powerful elite has definitely put the pressure on. Everyone is playing everyone. They're going to have a target painted on their back. That is a real threat. There's $2 billion to be had next year. I plan to take more than my fair share. High Profits, all new, Sunday nights at 10. Now you might be wondering, Matthew, what <laughs> in the world does that have to do with anything? Uh, it's a good question, fair question. I feel like uh, for this setting especially. Uh, the, the main, uh, I don't say actors, but the main people who are the focus of this documentary, Brian and Caitlin, were our friends. And the way that Elora and I met them, uh, so you remember a few years ago before there was, it was recreational marijuana, it was just medical marijuana. And a friend and I, we went to all the dispensaries in, in Breckenridge, and there was uh, six of them, I think, at the time. We introduced ourselves and said, hey, we'd love to be the chaplain of the dispensary. And you're like, what? So I think 
that I was the first chaplain to marijuana users in the world. <laughs> uh, but at one of them, we got to know the owners, Brian and Caitlin. And this is before the documentary, before they were on CNN. And um, we became friends with them. And eventually we'd had them over to dinner a couple times and had conversations late into the night about God and, and Jesus. And we became such, I want to say, uh, good friends with them that they gave me a key to the dispensary that there was a season of our lives there where every, I think it was Thursday nights, where I would go in, open up the dispensary, and have prayer and Bible study in the medical marijuana dispensary. Amen. Like, you did what, Matthew? What kind of? Uh, taking Jesus with us wherever God calls us to go and wherever people need Jesus. That's where we should be. Like, we, uh, um, I should try something like that again. I mean, we had the smoke some incense and things like just, you know, it's kind of smelly in there, but, uh, but it was good. And, and one, one guy who, he was part of my, the guy's book club. I played, uh, basketball with him. He, uh, he also came to our Bible studies at the Breckenridge Cannabis Club. And one night he asked me, he's like, Matthew, what would you think if I read a page of scripture and then smoked it? (laughs) That's a true story. They didn't prepare me for that in seminary. But I'm a spirit-filled guy, and the, the scripture that came to mind was, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. <laughs> so I don't know what he did with that, but that's what uh, came to mind. So we are to take this good news with us wherever we go. And so my, my challenge for you this week is like, what one step can you take to be intentional about being on mission for Jesus? Like, who, who can you invite to a meal? Who can you have coffee with? Who can you bless this week? How do we become a movement? We all take part in what, what God is doing. And uh, so that's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that movements start in the city. In verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. The whole book of Acts is about Christians in cities. Like, just uh, almost everything that happens in the book of Acts happens in a, a city. Uh, and New Testament believers, they're all city dwellers. They're urban, urban people. Um, and when the Christians, and when Paul wanted to reach a nation or a province, he went to the biggest city in that area. And from there, the gospel went out. Because it is the same today. In cities like in Denver, people from the nations, when they move to, when they migrate to a country, where do they go? Cities. They go to cities. They don't go to rural areas typically because there's more resources in the city. So people come to the cities. And, and so for Paul, he knew that there would be dozens of different languages spoken in the city. But usually there was a common language, just like we have in major cities around the world where there's a common language. And so he knew if, if he could take the gospel to that city, then there would be people from other nations there who would take the gospel back with them to their nations and to their cultures. And so to reach a nation, he would go to the city. But not only that, he would go to the city to reach the culture. Because if you go to, uh, say the word village, but if you go to a small town, like you might win someone to Christ, you might win a lawyer to Christ or an artist, but in the city, you can have an impact on the entire law profession, potentially. Like the culture flows out from the cities. And because Christians were focused on cities during the first two or three centuries after Christ, by the year 300, 
over half of the population of Roman cities were Christian. But the countryside was considered pagan. In fact, we have the word pagan today, and for us, pagan has, has different ideas, but there's kind of a, a spiritual idea behind it, not uh, Christian. But originally, pagan meant someone of the country, a farmer, because the people in the city had Jesus, had become Christians, where the, the pagans were the, the people in the rural areas. And um, this is so important for the church today, because in 2009, for the first time in the history of the world, there are more people living in cities than living outside of cities. There are more, just first time in history. And, and the UN predicts that in, uh, by the year 1950, going back in time, by 2050, the population of cities around the world will double. So right now, there's a little over three and a half million people in cities. Um, come 2050, they're projecting over six and a half billion people living in cities. And, uh, and you think Denver's growing, but if, if you go to there's certain cities in Africa, Latin America, Asia, where there's just exponential growth. Um, sociologists say something like five million people a month move into cities worldwide. That's huge. Uh, and that means that we've got to be in the city. It means that uh, we have to be good at urban ministry. And this is so important. And you're like, Matthew, we, we are here. We are in the city. Good job. Keep it up. That's what I'm saying. Good job. On this point, we're all in on this one. So far, everybody who's here today, we are in the city. And um, so that's the second thing that we learn about, that movements start in the city. A third, this passage teaches us how to effectively minister in the city. And we see this in uh, verses 5 through 8. And we see that it takes word, deed, and racial reconciliation. Word, deed, and racial reconciliation. So verse 5 says, Philip went down to a city and proclaimed the Christ there. So when you think of preaching, this is closer where this proclaiming for Christ is, and that he didn't just preach the Bible. He preached Jesus. Because Scripture, he knew, points to Jesus. Everything in Scripture from the Old Testament, it all has its climax in Jesus. And so he proclaimed the Christ, and he knew that the Bible isn't just about principles to, to have a happier life and be blessed by God. He knew that the Bible is about Jesus, and that's who he proclaimed, the Christ. And, um, but on the other hand, he didn't just proclaim. He did, he did good stuff. He did good deeds. In verse 6, it says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he helped the hurting. And, and when he saw the physical misery around him, he worked on it. He healed the sick. When he saw the spiritual bondage, he cast out demons and he healed and the crowds flocked and listened to his preaching. And it makes sense. In verse six, it says, when they saw what he did, they paid close attention to what he said. So in other words, we, we can't just be a church that proclaims or, and we can't just be a church that does good stuff in the neighborhood. It is, it's a balance of, of both. Like we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also we need to, to find where we can serve in ways that we can, can love our city. And uh, I know many, many of us are being intentional about that already, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But the only way to see a movement of God that lifts our whole city is if there is a combination of word and deed. And then the third mark of a dynamic, effective urban ministry is racial reconciliation. Oh, here we go again. He's always talking about race. Uh, 
as you read the book of Acts, I can't help it. Like that is one of the major themes is that this gospel is for everybody. Um, you're like, okay, Matthew, I, I don't disagree with that. But what, like in these eight verses, he doesn't say anything about racial reconciliation. Au contraire. <laughs> okay. Let's take a uh, closer, let's take a closer look here. Because uh, who, we have Philip, a Jew, and who else is in the story? Samaritans. Now, as you read through, through Scripture, read through the New Testament, there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews, and they hated one another fiercely. And it, it puts a little bit of our, our racial tensions that we experience in the United States, uh, I mean, it, it ratchets it up like tenfold compared to what we are experiencing today. Like the, the, the level of uh, just vitriol that they had towards one another. Uh, so I'm going to set this up for you just a little bit. I've got uh, a, a diagram, I think. Yep, here we go. So uh, about 700 years before Jesus was even born, Israel was in two kingdoms. And the bottom kingdom was called Judah, where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. The top kingdom uh, was uh, the 10 tribes of Israel had broken off. And sometimes Israel and Judah were friends. Sometimes they went to war with one another. They were like frenemies, you know? Uh, and so they had this conflict going back and forth. Uh, but 700 years before Jesus, the, the Assyrian Empire, which is up north, came down and wiped out Israel and took uh, the Israelites into captivity. And then as a response, in, in order to, um, basically they like to decimate people's cultures so that the culture couldn't rise back up. And so they brought people from other nations that they had conquered in to Israel. And, and with, you can see Samaria as the, the capital there And so uh, when they came back and when they repopulated, they, different uh, races intermarried, which the Jews of the, what we call the southern kingdom of Judah, that was a no-go for them. And, and so they saw the Samaritans now, who would be, they're no longer Israel, but considered more like Samaritans, uh, as a mongrel race, as half-breeds. Uh, and later, the southern kingdom was taken uh, about 500 years before Jesus. The southern kingdom was taken by the Babylonians, and then they came back of their own accord 70 years later. We read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And when they came back, Jerusalem was in shambles. The walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, and so they wanted to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans came along like, hey, let's help. They said, no, thank you. And then the Samaritans said, okay, we're not going to let you rebuild that. And so they, this, uh, I mean, it, it was ugly. And Again, you can read about that in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then a hundred years before Jesus, uh, the, the Jews of Jerusalem, of Judah, went up into Samaria, uh, Samaria and waged war against it and ravaged the land. And then right at the time of Jesus, the Samaritans went into the temple in Jerusalem and they desecrated it by, by spreading the bones of deceased people throughout the temple. So when I say there was no love lost, like this was a bitter like, I, I cannot be in the same room. You are, um, like, you are everything I hate, everything I, I despise. They mistrusted one another. But here we are told that Philip went to preach the gospel to a city in Samaria. And he ministered among those who would have been the most despised people group that Philip could have known. And he shared Jesus with them. So what, what does that tell us? 
tells us that the gospel had changed Philip. The gospel had changed his heart, and he had a whole new way of looking at the world. He didn't feel superior to the Samaritans any longer. Because before the gospel came into Philip's life, he, like, he wouldn't even have cared about the Samaritans, like to go tell them this good news. Like, why? And even if he had thought that, he would have thought them so far gone. Like, there is no hope for them. Because they, uh, I mean, besides, you know, being intermarried, they also got rid of most of the Old Testament. So they were heretics as well. Um, But the gospel had changed his life. And it had changed him. And and this is how it, it changed him. He knew that because of the gospel that everyone is hopeless apart from the gospel. Me, you, white, black, brown. Therefore, no one is really more hopeless than anyone else. And so if I can be saved, anyone can be saved and changed and brought into the family of God. Because the gospel works on the pride of our heart, the superiority of our heart, what lifts us up, but it also works on the inferiority of our heart. Those things what makes us think we don't or we're not enough. And this is so important for us as a church. Um, especially in, in our neighborhood, because our, like our, we're people that want to take the, the path of least resistance. I mean, just, it's just easier. And so we typically go after people who look like us or think like us or uh, vote like us. But unless we're able to show the world people getting along in here that can't get along out there, then we really haven't applied the gospel to our lives. We really haven't applied the gospel to our hearts and um, we look at our neighborhood, Park Hill. Park Hill's been called the idyllic Denver neighbor, neighborhood. And this is, especially when it comes to um, looking at the history of, of race and uh, racial integration, Park Hill uh, became known as one of the, the first integrated neighborhoods in the United States. There was a local newspaper that once asserted that Park Hill was the largest, longest existing, stable, multiracial community organization in the United States. Now that's quite the boast. Um, and in, in 1964, Dr. King himself came and was on the steps of Mount View Presbyterian Church. 3,000 people showed up. Uh, and there's a funny story that he got locked in the building in the study and had to get let down through a ladder on the outside. Uh, but Dr. King on the steps. And so there's this, uh, this, this great heritage. But then when you look a little bit deeper at the history, and know that uh, Northeast Denver has been mostly minorities. And as you go south, historically, it gets white and rich quick. And um, when we, uh, when Elora and I had first moved to, to the neighborhood, we were going to uh, Cherry Park up the street here. And uh, my boys were playing with a little black boy. And at the time, Britt was four. So this, he was just a little guy. Um, and this little boy he was playing with was about his same size, about his same age. And they're having a good time. And we were the only kids at the park. This other, uh, this other boy and my boys. And we're getting ready to leave. And the, the little boy, he, he looks at me and he raised his fist. And I don't remember what he said, but it was like a, a black pride chant. And then he told me, he's like, I hate white people. This little white boy. Or this little black boy. Oh. And then he said, and this is what get you. He's like, are you white? Something was happening, right? 
like he had been told something or like he was supposed to hate a certain person, but he must have been enjoying playing with my boys. And, and um, so I don't know how to answer that question. I don't, don't want to be hated. And I look at Britt. It's like, Britt, four-year-old, he'll have a better answer. It's like, Britt, are you, are you white? And Britt looked at himself. He's like, no, I'm tan. I'm tan. I'm tan. Uh, and there have been honest efforts to, to bring racial reconciliation in the, in the neighborhood for the last 60 years. But only the gospel can change hearts and bring change and bring us together where everything else fails. Only the gospel changes. Only the gospel says that I am going to serve you. Only the gospel says that I need to die to self and the things that I think and the things that I've been raised with to serve and to love you. Only the gospel can break the dividing wall of hostility. And so as a church, if we will all proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, if we'll all get involved in our, our neighborhood and, and working for the good of those around us, and if we will embrace racial reconciliation, we'll see in verse 8 was the result, is that there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. And um, so the question for us is, is there great joy in our neighborhood because the Hills Church is here? Like, is, is there great joy at your work? When you walk in the doors on Monday morning, are people like, oh, I get to work with him today. I get to work with her today. Like, is there great joy? Because we are there. And as I conclude, I just want to uh, point out one final thing. Is that there was death and misery before there was life and joy in these verses. There was death and misery. There was death and destruction and grief as, as they had to flee for their lives. And then in verse 5 through 8, we see that there was life and, and joy. And there would not have been joy in life if there had had not first been death and agony. Like, like we want to go straight to joy in life, and, but there was death that took place. There was agony that, that took place, and that, that is the gospel. And why Stephen was able to give his life so that Samaria would live, he was following Jesus' example. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And we might be called upon someday to give our life. Now, that, that is a very remote possibility for anyone in the United States, for us here. We, we have religious freedom, but there are, we are still called upon to die to self, to die to our own desires. And, and, to, um, and what it may mean is that, um, well, if you start getting involved in people's lives and start um, giving of your time, sacrificing your time, you may have to give up a weekend of fun in order to, to invest in people's lives. Or when it even comes to, to giving of our finances generously, when we give uh, sacrificially, it, it may keep us from, from buying something that we want to buy, like on ourselves or, or spending something on ourselves or because we have, uh, in a very real sense, we have died to self. But death leads to resurrection. Death we see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in the early church. When the death of Stephen, it led to this beautiful expansion of the gospel that we're going to see continue as we go through the book of Acts. And if you will pour yourself out for others the way Jesus poured his life out, it will lead to joy in this city. This is the pattern of the gospel, that our, our death leads to resurrection. And, and our life is, 
God, our life is so fleeting. Our life is a vapor. And um, in a few years, we're all going to meet our maker, like some sooner than others. Um, but when we are born, we start a race against death, and it's a race that we cannot win. And every time we look back, death is a little closer. We cannot outrun death. And, and after I die, uh, my family will remember me for a few years. But my grandkids, their grandkids, they're not going to know my name. They're not going to know your name. Um, but when we participate in the mission of God, we can leave a legacy that far outweighs, outlives our lives. And this, in the previous chapter, Stephen preached one sermon. Like that might have been his only sermon. He might think, man, what a wasted life. But it wasn't wasted because he lived it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no life is wasted when we live for Jesus. And he was part of something greater than himself. And so uh, when we look at the book of Acts and as a church, we want to be a movement. And it's not just going to happen unless we're willing to give of ourselves and lay down our own, our own lives. So would you pray with me?